0: Up next, we have our next panel session. This panel will be speaking to the innovation and challenges with decentralized payments and smart contracts. Our moderator will be Heather Flannery. As we know, she was just up here. She is serving as the Health Circle Global Lead for Consensus Health. She's also the co-founder and chair of Blockchain and Healthcare Global, a 501c6 trade organization under IEEE Isto. And our speakers will be Kambiz Abdurami, the former US Treasury Senior Policy Advisor at Deloitte. We also have Avinash Bura, the Product Manager at, of Digital Asset, as well as Jim Liu, Assistant Professor of Finance at the Johns Hopkins Carey Business School. Thank you. All right, thank you so much, Tina. Wow, this is a really esteemed panel. Great honor to be here. Uh, so we're gonna be talking about uh, innovation challenges with smart contracts and decentralized payments. So let's start with introductions. Um, and maybe we could work this way, starting with you, Dr. Liu. Can
1: you
0: guys hear
1: me? There you go. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm so happy to be at Columbia. This is where I did my PhD in finance in the business school. I love Columbia. I want to come back here. I have two daughters and I want them to go to school at Columbia so we'd be forced back to move back to the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Anyhow, um, I've I've been at Johns Hopkins Business School for six years. And in the last two years, it's gotten you know even more exciting because the knowledge that I acquired at Columbia, I regurgitated in the first five years, <laughs> in the business school. But then the last two years, because of blockchains and because of machine learning and big data, um, you know, I have something sort of new to sort of explain to the students. And I'm you know, we are very blessed to have Jose co-teaching the blockchain course in the business school. It's the first time we're offering it. Uh, students are really really excited. They are super duper excited about understanding this technology because they can see the potential. Um, I also have a small um, consulting company, SoCat, named after my two daughters, Sophie and Catherine. <laughs> so- SoCat, and then you know we do machine learning, AI, and blockchains uh, for federal um, clients and also for some you know asset managers. So that's my background, and I'm very very uh, happy to be here on this panel.
0: Thank you, Dr. Liu. And Combies.
2: Yes. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Kambis Um I um, am currently at Deloitte in our uh, government and public services practice focusing on blockchain, machine learning, artificial intelligence for our uh, federal government, uh, state and local governments as well. Um, prior to that, I've been with Deloitte now for about five months, six months. Um, before that, I, I uh, worked at the US Department of the Treasury, where I advised uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin on technology and innovation within the financial sector. Um, so I have uh, more of a financial services sector background. Um, also, before that, I worked um, in the White House and the Senate, and also at the State Department. So I have a sort of a varied career within the federal government space, working for regulators, working as a policymaker, and also as an attorney. Thanks.
3: Thank you. Thank I think you can hear me without the mic. Yeah, you two can share that one.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so, actually, hi, everyone. I'm Avinash Bora, and like Jim, I'm actually really happy to be back at Columbia. I was CISO4. Uh, so, currently, I'm the healthcare product lead at Digital Asset. Uh, we are uh, a leading DLT, uh, Distributed Ledger Technology Provider for enterprise uh, market infrastructures, financial market infrastructures, and also other highly regulated markets, such as healthcare. We're about 200 employees uh, headquartered in New York uh, and five other locations across the world. Um, we, our product offering consists of two elements, essentially, one is the DLT layer itself. And then on top of that, we have uh, the uh, digital asset modeling language, which is a smart contracting language that we've built in house, that, inter- uh, that interacts with the blockchain. And uh, it's custom built for processing uh, multi party workflows
0: right it's it's fantastic how much depth we have on this panel uh, at on at the intersection of, of fintech and smart contracts and moving into healthcare i think that's an overall frame of reference that we that we should think about is how this technology has reached higher levels of maturity and adoption in financial services so there are things that we can learn in healthcare uh, there's an opportunity to cross pollinate so before we get into that question let's let's first have a little bit of a discussion about what smart contracts actually are and there's there's just a wonderful spectrum of perspectives that it'll be exciting to hear you're on you go now Dr. Lou finance professor what's a smart contract
1: okay so i have to use the old term that i heard from heather actually in uh, near dc It's neither smart nor a contract.
0: You stole my line. That's my favorite thing to say. What are we gonna do now? Oh my
1: god. Okay, so I'm glad that someone's still awake. Uh, So smart contract, (laughs) at the end of the day, it's very simple uh, code. So it's a very simple code like an if-then. So I'll give you an example so that you guys can all understand it. Um, Assume that we don't have the distributed ledger technology. Just assume we don't have that, okay? Because that's part of the blockchain. Suppose we don't need that. How many people have set up auto pay at the end of the month for their mortgage payment? Raise your hand. There you go. What is that? It's a piece of code with very simple logic because what does it do? It says, hey, what day is it? Is this at the end of the month, yes or no? If it's at the end of the month, what happens? Right, you, you, you pay your mortgage, right? It's automated and it's, it's, it's following a very simple logic. If, the, if it's the end of the month, do this, right? And you, you've agreed to set that up. Now the question I have for you is how many of the, of the people who raised their hands, how many people can shut it off? Can you shut that off? Yes, right? So one of the things that is interesting is theoretically if you put that smart contract onto one of these blockchains, can you shut it off? Yes or no? See, so, so, so this, is, this is where the tension is, right? Right now we can just call the bank and just say I don't wanna do this anymore. I bought a new house, set up the auto pay for something else. As the currently implementation, we, we're at a, a little bit of a tr- tricky point here with smart contracts on the blockchain because once you put it out there, then it continues to keep executing, right? So this is something that we have to, we have to figure out and we can solve. And you can actually solve it with some code, but you know, it has to take a little bit more thought in order to figure that out. But you know, that's my uh, simple example.
0: And an attorney's perspective.
2: Yes. Well, I was I was going to use the vending machine example, but I liked yours. No, no, no. I like yours a lot better. Um, so I, I guess from a from a legal perspective, um, and and I have to borrow again what Heather brilliantly coined. You know, and I also have to admit, I think also the digital chamber because they put out their. Um, uh, smart contracts uh, white paper. They also have that at the top. Mm. It's neither smart, not necessarily smart, right. or did
0: they uh, the contract? a contract. They did not. Oh, my oh we're going to get into it now.
2: <laughs> so, it's about um, to get
0: crazy. Uh,
2: so, yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it cannot, it's not necessarily legally binding. Um, I think uh, from a, again, from a legal perspective, you know, what is, what are contracts, right? So you have like offer, you have acceptance, and you have consideration, which is, you know, either something of value or an exchange or a bargain, some sort of promise. Um, With with smart contracts, um, you don't necessarily meet sort of all three of those requirements. You don't necessarily have, um, you know, do you necessarily have a meeting of the minds? Uh, You know, when something is sort of, Uh, you know, automatic or uh, self-executing, if there's a mistake, if there's, and I think um, Professor uh, Liu here alluded to this, if there's, you know, some sort of um, an error or something, uh, or you decide that you want to stop, you know, put a stop on whatever the auto pay or any kind of, you know, feature or condition of the contract, um, who do you go to? Um, So it's those kinds of questions and issues about notice and consent and uh, consumer protection that I think are, um, you know, a lot of sort of legal scholars are kind of, you know, there's all these uh, law review articles and things that are written on it, sort of the enforceability of smart contracts. Um, There is several states that are, um, you know, pushing for uh, legalization, quote unquote, of smart contracts. But that presumes that smart contracts aren't necessarily legal, and there are there are attorneys or you know who practice in this in this space who say that by the Electronic Signatures Act, the Uniform Electronic Transactions Act, that they they uh, that smart con- smart legal contracts are legally binding under the law. So there's no need for a separate state law. Um, so, there's a lot of legal issues I think with smart contracts that you can have a whole hour long co- uh, discussion about it and debate, um, but you know, I guess sort of if we step back and just have a ba- like a definition um, which I find uh, very helpful and useful for me is that it's distributed computer protocols intended to facilitate, verify or enforce the negotiation or performance of a contract.
0: Mm-hmm. Very nice. All right. Uh,
3: and I'm gonna say something that hasn't been said on the table so far. Uh, smart contracts are neither smart nor contracts. So, smart contracts are essentially uh, pieces of code that, uh, that automate business workflows. Now, at Digital Asset, uh, we, take, uh, we take the view that smart contracts need to, need to follow certain properties. So for a contract to be enforceable in any sense, participation into it needs to be voluntary. So you can't force people to enter into a contract. Uh, for a contract to be meaningful, the stakeholders of a certain section of the <coughs> workflow are the only ones who need who should have visibility into that piece of the workflow. Meaning, if it's a multi-party contract involving parties A, B, and C, but there's one leg of it that involves just A and B, C should not be notified of a state change in in that leg of the transaction. Um, and then, you know, this, so that was to, uh, I'm gonna pull a Rick Perry and say oops on my third <laughs> one. Uh, but but essentially, but uh, these these uh, are, and um, inf- a lot of these are enforced at the language level, um, a, as opposed to at the contract level. Uh, so you need a language, oh yes, I remember the third one. For a contract to be meaningful, every, possible end state of the contract needs to be statically analyzable before entering into that contract. So it needs to have a finite number of outcomes that you can know before you enter into it. Um, so and all of these are enforced at the language level. So you have general purpose programming languages, which are, which are very powerful. Um, and you know they give you a lot of flexibility and they allow you to program any outcome, but they also allow you to experience any outcome as a result of it. Um, so, if if you have, and I'm going to throw this term out there, a, a Turing incomplete language, which essentially makes the number of outcomes you can experience finite, just because it's really a dumb language, intentionally dumb language that cannot do multiple things. So. You have finite number of outcomes, and then uh, in DAML we've introduced this uh, concept of obligability, where only a party that's obligable to its part of the workflow gets access to it, has visibility into it. Um, so a, a lot of these safeguards are enforced at the lang- in, in our view are enforced at the language level. And lastly, I will say that uh, you, you'd hear that you'll hear the term code is law thrown around a lot. I, we don't take that view. Uh, we take the view that code is definitely subservient to whatever the legal jurisdiction is.
0: Avinash, uh, you you raised a really important uh, characteristic of of the technology in general in terms of its privacy-preserving characteristics or the potential of privacy-preserving characteristics. Um, I think one of the things I say is that these are uh, cryptographically verified distributed stored procedures that live above the data layer and uh, and act on a stream of data coming between ecosystem actors in, in real time or close to real time. Um, these, uh, The issue of privacy and security with smart contracts, let's, let's talk about that for a little bit. So it's super important. First, let's take privacy preserving characteristics and how that could matter in the way that um, ecosystem actors may come together. And I know there's a lot of depth from financial services here, so maybe we could get an example from how that's working in FinTech anywhere um, and enabling uh, data to flow that would otherwise be illiquid due to um, proprietary or sensitive data disclosure. Um, Dr. Liu, you want to
1: start there? Sure, so um, where does the blockchain work in the fintech world? Uh, processing trades for exchanges, it works really well. Anything that you have to do, um, sort of, wrote and you know, because of maybe uh, there was some computational error because a human being, whatever it may be, that works really well. And in that system, like you suppose we have an exchange like the New York Stock Exchange and we have to process these trades, right? So that ecosystem is closed. Now, not everybody wants to disclose who's trading what with whom on those exchanges. Like, suppose I'm you know, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley's over here, and I'm unloading a bunch of GE stocks, right? I don't want everybody to know what's going on. So, in that ecosystem, it's sort of closed, it's permissioned. We could facilitate these trades between myself, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley, or pick over whatever investment bank you want, and that's not exposed to the, the public, right? Now, suppose I wanted to do a financial transaction with my daughter, so I set up a smart contract. Whenever it's my daughter's birthday, pay her you know, a dollar, I don't know, $10. I don't know, how much do you pay your kids now? It's what, whatever a it is, dollar. one Bitcoin, wow. like, 0. <laughs> like a Satoshi? No, no, just suppose we're gonna give them a little bit of money, and suppose I set up that, that um, smart contract, and then I kept paying, and now she's like 21, now she's married, but I kept paying, so that wasn't a very good implementation of the smart contract, right? So I would've put a little bit more code in there saying, okay, I will pay her a birthday gift with some Bitcoins or whatever, up to the point that she's 18 years old, right? And so then it stops, which is fine. That's probably a better implementation. But the issue is, what if someone figures out that that address actually belongs to my daughter? Now, you know, now she's been identified, so how do I protect her from that, right? So then I could go back and I could think of a better way to try to pay her on her birthday. You know, maybe I use a a mixing coin like Monero Zcash, right? Maybe I use something else. But so so the point is that, you know, when you're going through the process, start out with a simple case, and then you, you add the complexity to your smart contract as necessary. And sometimes you, won't, you don't wanna reveal who, who the other counterparty is. I, I certainly don't want everybody in the world, especially you know, marketing firms to know that I have a 13-year-old daughter who has this particular birthday and likes you know, these things and so forth, right? And so you know, these are, these are the, um, the realities of this technology because it used to be the case that we thought that uh, whenever we did transactions on a blockchain for Bitcoins, nobody knew who we were because we were, we were this hashed uh, public address. But that has changed actually. There was a researcher who said, oh, you can actually identify these public addresses and find out who these people are, right? So then all of a sudden the community is like, oh, it's not an honest anymore. This is so bad, this is so bad, right? And then we sort of readjust, right? So the point here is that, you know, whenever someone comes out with a really strong statement about blockchains, right, you have to sort of understand up to that point is probably true. But moving forward, new, with new technology innovations, with new startups thinking up new ideas how to use this technology, it may not be true, right? So you know those are the things that we have to at least be aware of. We can't be so strong about our statements. You know, blockchains is going to save the world. We're always going to be anonymous. Uh, that 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 didn't happen, right? So you know these are the things. You know, one thing I want to throw out there, just so that we can all think about it, is when quantum computing comes along, and now we can break all these. Cryptographic hashes, right? The public-private key. Then what happens, right? That's coming down our, our in you know our lifetime. So then what happens, all the things that we said about blockchains is secure, it's transparent and immutable, all of a sudden a new piece of hardware technology comes and it can actually break a lot of the stuff that was built upon. So then we have to have even more innovation on top of that in order to protect it, right? And there, there, there will be innovation there, but my point here is you know, we have to really appreciate the uncertainty that's available right now as the community develops this technology.
0: Thank, thank you, Dr. Liu. Um, I think you handled that question really comprehensively, so if it's all right, I wanna take it a little bit of a different direction here. Um, there's a term that's being discussed that is, is newly being spoken aloud, and it's people are calling systems monolithic to describe our current, uh, our current client server or, or, and even web 2.0-based architectures. As we're thinking about um, smart contracts as conceptualizing them as autonomous agents, It really um, speaks to an entirely different model for architecting uh, computing systems. And uh, oftentimes what's not understood to somebody coming in is that these, uh, these aren't an application that exists of hundreds of functions potentially in the way that we conceptualize them today. And each of these very small, very small, very discrete autonomous agents can have vulnerabilities. Um, and uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about um, the cybersecurity dimensions of, of how we move forward with that that risk. And um, I'll start with you, Combs.
2: Actually, my mind was going into, like the cybersecurity direction. I could feel it. So we were having a meeting of the minds right there. <laughs> we really were. Um, I, you know. I, so I did a lot of work when I was at Treasury on sort of like the fintechs and those who are looking to, um, you know, become, say, financial institutions, regulated financial institutions, and having access to our payment systems, right? So the Fed, you know, ACH, Fedwire, etc. cetera. Um, you always introduce new vulnerabilities when you connect systems to cyberspace, internet, payments, um, IoT. You're going to always have that vulnerability, um, I think, with any technology. Um, how do you account for uh, sort of cybersecurity risk rem- remediation controls in this smart contracts platform ecosystem, I think, is a, is a challenge. It's one of the challenges um, that really needs to be um, addressed in order for this to fully scale. I mean, we're talking about, um, again, it's, you know, these, like I think one of the promising areas within blockchain obviously is smart contracts. If we're going to sort of, you know, pivot towards like say the healthcare space, you know, you have, what is it, 16 or 18% of the GDP um, healthcare, Uh, you have over 3 trillion, perhaps even 4 trillion in payments. Um, If you put even a fraction of that on smart contracts and distributed ledger technology, um, and 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 having not having a strong cybersecurity um, governance regime, control regime, then you're going to introduce risk into this whole system. And I think that um, you know for for these technologies, you need to have a, a strong sort of cybersecurity uh, plan of action. Uh, you know to address uh, again some of these vulnerabilities and and. Um, you know it's just again it's it's one of these one of these challenges that i think with with government and payments you know we have the same issues where you know every day i think like what is it visa or mastercard one of these sort of credit card companies they're hit with you know thousands and tens of thousands and perhaps even hundreds of thousands of uh, cyber intrusion attempts mm-hmm. um, we're talking about something very small right now but should this scale and grow and and hit you know Trillions of dollars in, in transaction volume. Um, you know, how is it going to look? If you know, is this going to expose us to more vulnerabilities or not, or account for that? I, I mean, that's a great question. I, you know, it's just com- incredibly complex.
0: It is indeed, and I think it, I think it bears mentioning that best practices are already emerging for pen testing and auditing of of smart contracts and third party attestation of security status. Uh, and that those are those are things we should all be taking very very seriously. So we have time for one more question. So Avinash, I I'm, I'm, didn't give you an opportunity to react to, react to those questions, but um, quantum computing came up a little while ago, and I have a feeling you might know a little bit about that. Uh, and I'm thinking about quantum resistant encryption and how we how we can have a forward looking view. So kind of wrapping up the panel with some thoughts on where this technology is heading, and how we can secure it and and advance it in the in this in that state of
3: change right well I am I will say how I'm not the expert on con- quantum computing no one is right. Uh, but what, <laughs> what, what I do understand from my um, undergrad science days uh, my grad school science days at Columbia is uh, as things stand right now even with the co- quantum computer yes, yes it could potentially break uh, some of the cryptographic graphic, um, encryption we have but it would but that would happen along with the heat death of the Sun <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay okay yeah I know our um, our National Institute of Standards and Technology is working on uh, quantum resistant encryption standards and the concept of modularity of encryption modules so that our blockchains can have upgrades of their encryption logic without losing um, the the integrity of the ledger major challenges ahead for us right yeah absolutely. Um, well, thank you. Uh, audience, please thank the esteemed panel.
2: Thank you.